So if you want to go ahead and turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 18, we're going to be in uh, Genesis chapter 18, which is one of those famous stories about the patriarch Abraham. You know uh, many of the stories of, of Abraham and his life. And uh, Abraham had, had a, a, an adventurous life, a life that had all sorts of ups and downs. And really, chapter 18 is one, one of those culminating events in the life of Abraham. In fact, it is one of the events that really changes Abraham from being a, a doubtful, faithless man into a man of faith. And so we're going to look at that story in Genesis 18. Uh, but before we get into that, I just, just don't, I just want to remind you of where we've been so far. So we've been looking at this and studying through the doctrine of worship and cut, trying to understand better why we worship, who it is we worship, and now we're on the subject of what worship is. So we've already, you know, started back in January and we've spent all this time just getting ready to define what worship is. So now, starting last week, I started to define what worship is, and we are doing that by looking at the Hebrew words that the original languages that the Bible was written in, the Hebrew words that are used to refer to worship, that we translate into our English word for worship. And so last week we looked at the Hebrew word abad, and we saw that the Hebrew word abad basically defines worship to be uh, the act of aligning all of our lives under the rule of Jesus Christ. Or you might say it as far as what we do in abiding or in our act of abide is that we serve God with all of our lives. So the first thing that worship is, is it's the act of serving God with all that we are. So now we move on to the second Hebrew word. I told you last time that there are two Hebrew words that we translate into worship. And the second Hebrew word that is used for worship or that we translate into worship is the Hebrew word saha or S-A-H-A. Saha is the more popular word that you find in the Old Testament. In fact, it, it is mostly translated into our our English word for worship. So most of the time, if you're reading the Bible in the Old Testament and you read the word worship, it is the Hebrew word saha. But the Hebrew word saha has three different ways that it is used in the Old Testament to describe what worship is. So I lied to you last week and I told you that we would only be in three sermons that define what worship is. Well, I'm going to have to add one because as I got to looking at, uh, at this word saha, I realized I had missed a particular way that it's used. So over the next three weeks, we're going to kind of look at all the different ways that saha is used and come to understand how, what this word means and, and as in relation to that, what worship is as a result of that. So I told you that one of the ways that, it's, that we can define what a word means is we can look at the first time that word is used and we can kind of see from that usage how, what that word means. So the first time the word saha is ever used in the book of Genesis or ever used in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 18. Now, again, like we did last week, 
I'm going to let y'all do a little guessing game and try to figure out where the word is used because in this passage, it isn't translated into worship. It's translated into a different word. So we'll see if you can catch that as we read it today. So let's begin by reading Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 through 15. Genesis 18, 1 through 15, God's word says, And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from his tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet. And rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seahs of of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is, your, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, Shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. So, as we break down this text this morning, I want you to understand one Thing from my sermon today. So if you want to write down one thing at all about my sermon uh, for today, it is this. Worship is the act of reverently communing with God through the presence of His Spirit. Worship is the act of reverently communing with God through the presence of His Spirit. And there are three points that I want to make from this text today. The first is the covenant of God results in the presence of God. Second, right worship reverences the presence of God. And last, the presence of God reveals the promises of God. So the covenant of God results in the presence of God. Right worship reverences the presence of God. And the presence of God reveals the promises of God. So first, let's consider the fact that the covenant of God results in the presence of God. Now, in this story of Abraham's encounter with God, 
The Lord has already appeared to Abraham in four different ways. He's already spoken to Abraham four different times and made a promise to Abraham. He starts in Genesis chapter 12 and he says, Abraham, uh, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great and I'm going to make you a blessing. And uh, those who curse you, I will curse. And those who bless you, I will bless. And through you, all nations of the world will be blessed. And then he moves on. And in Genesis chapter 15, he has Abraham uh, make a sacrifice. And he, uh, God shows up in a vision and he passes through this sacrifice. And he makes this promise again. And he says, your descendants will be as innumerable as the sands on the seashore. And then in Genesis chapter 17, the chapter just before this story that we just read, God shows up again and he uh, makes the promise again to Abraham. And in, there are two ways in chapter 17 that God reassures Abraham of the promise. First, he changes Abram and Sarah's name to, or Abram and Sarah to Abraham and Sarah. Okay, now that seems like a subtle change, but Abram means father, and Abraham means the father of a nation. Sarah means, uh, I believe it's beloved or, or daughter, I think is what it means, and Sarah, uh, Sarah means queen. So he, he changes their names so that they are now named in relation to the promise that he is making. And then the other sign that God gives to Abraham is he tells Abraham to take all of the males in his tribe and to circumcise them as a sign of his promise. And so Abraham faithfully does that. He, he circumcises all of the males in his tribe. And then Abraham sits and he waits. And chapter 18 picks up uh, after some undefined amount of time. And we find that Abraham is still sitting and waiting. He's sitting at the tent door waiting on God to fulfill his promise. And it says that it's in the middle of the day. It's hot. And he's just sitting there. I imagine him just sitting over his knees. Maybe he's thinking about the promise. He doesn't know when on earth God is going to fulfill this promise. And he looks up and there are three men standing before him. But these three men are different. And we know they're different first because of the way Abraham acts towards them. You'll notice in verse 2, it says that he looks up and there are these three men standing before him. And what does Abraham do? You notice that? It says that he bows himself before him. Now, pop quiz, not, maybe not pop quiz, but a little bit of a surprise. That word there, bow, is the Hebrew word sahat. In fact, your translation may say that he worshiped before them. So when it says that Abraham bows before these men, it means that Abraham recognizes that these men are so different that they deserve not just a meal and not just to have their feet washed, but they deserve his worship. So the only thing that Abraham knows to do is to bow down and worship them. Second, though, we know that these men are different because Abraham immediately goes and he begins to, to uh, prepare this meal. And it's funny because you read the story and he says, y'all sit here. 
I'm going to wash your, I'm going to have your feet washed and I'm going to go make a morsel of food for you. And then he runs into his tent and he tells his wife, because Abraham's not going to cook, right, ladies? It's going to be uh, Sarah that cooks. But he runs into his tent and he tells Sarah, get two seahs of flour. Now, if your Bible has a little note there, you'll notice that a seah is seven quarts. So this is four gallons worth of flour, almost four gallons worth of flour that he tells her to get. You don't need but like two cups of flour to make enough biscuits to feed your family, okay? But so he goes and he gets two gallons worth of flour and he says, make a bre- some bread and let's feed these folks. And not only that, but he goes and he kills a calf and he has the calf uh, skinned out and cooked up and he brings to these men this meal. And so obviously from the way Abraham is acting, he knows that these men are different and he calls them Lord. He calls one of them Lord. But there's a third way that we know that these men are different. And you notice down in verse 10, it's the way that the Bible says that one of these men respond to Abraham. It says, notice it says, the Lord said to Abraham. Now you might notice in your translation or in your Bible that the word Lord is all capitalized. And that's because that is not Lord in the sense of a master. That is Lord in the sense of God. The, whenever you see the word Lord capitalized in your Bible, that is the covenant name for God. So when one of these men speaks, he's not speaking as an angel or as a man. He's speaking directly as God himself. So what, what Abraham is experiencing through this very presence of God is, is the very presence of God in human form. Now, the theologians call this a theophany. And a theophany means that it's God's presence physically revealed. And throughout the Bible, there are all these different examples that you find of theophanies. So think about the burning bush, right? When God appears in Exodus chapter 3 to Moses, he appears in the form, a physical form, before Moses. He appears as a burning bush or the pillar of fire and smoke that go before the people of Israel as they go through the promise or go towards the promised land or when it says that fire and smoke descended on Mount Sinai or when it says that fire and smoke descended or smoke descended on the tabernacle and the temple all of these are theophanies they are physical representations of God with his people so In all of that, you'll notice if you think about the burning bush and the pillar of fire and the smoke that filled the temple and all these different things. One thing that you begin to notice is that God's special presence only seems to come to those who are in covenant with him. The covenant of God results in the presence of God. Now, that's not to say that people outside of the covenant don't see the presence of God. But how do the people outside, especially in the Old Testament, people outside of the covenant of God, how do they experience the presence of God? How did Pharaoh experience the presence of God? In God's wrath, right? It is only in the covenant of God that 
his people experience his presence as loving and blessed and good. Outside of the covenant of God, it is judgment and wrath. Inside of the covenant of God, it is love and blessing. So, second, from Genesis chapter 18, we find that right worship reverences the presence of God. Now, as I've already mentioned in verse 2, the only response that Abraham could muster to the presence of God was to fall down and worship. And throughout the Old Testament, the act of worship is an act of bowing down. In fact, just like we had here, the way that Abraham worshipped was to bow down. And throughout the Old Testament, you find that happening in several places. For example, in Joshua chapter 5, verse 14, Joshua is getting ready to go fight God's battle. And before he gets ready to go, he comes face to face with someone that the Bible calls the commander of the Lord's army. And it says in Joshua chapter 5, verse 14, that Joshua sahad or bowed down before him in psalm chapter 5 verse 7 motivated by the love of god the psalmist sahaz or bows in the temple psalm in psalm chapter uh, in psalm 95 6 the psalmist says come let us saha or worship and bow down let us kneel before the lord our god our maker So the third thing that I want you to see from Genesis chapter 18 is that the presence of God reveals the promise of God. So in verse 9 through 15, there's kind of this funny story of the the way that God reveals himself to uh, Abraham and Sarah. It says that the Lord reveals his purpose for visiting Abraham in person, and that is to make a very specific promise as to when his son would be born. Now, at this promise, Sarah's, like every good wife, is listening behind the wall. And, uh, <laughs> and she hears that, that, here's this promise, and what does she do? She laughs, right? Because Sarah, number one, has been barren her whole life. She has never been able to have a child, but now something else has changed. She, it says, both she and Abraham are old. They are past the point of being intimate. And not only that, but Sarah has hit menopause. She is beyond the way, she says, the way of the woman has ceased with me. In other words, she is past childbearing years, even though she's never been able to have children anyway. Now, God, being God, knows what she has said, and she knows, and he knows why she has said it, even though she's hidden from him. And so he calls her out on it. And in verse 14, he reiterates the promise by asking this question. Is anything too hard for the Lord? The Lord had promised time and again, and each time he had promised, he had assured Abraham with, a, with some sort of sign. And now with the last promise that he's going to give before Isaac's born, he gives the surest sign that he could. And that is, he shows up in person. God's presence is the surest sign that his promise 
will be fulfilled. And just a year later, or about this time the following year, Sarah, the woman who has been barren her whole life, the woman who is past childbearing years, has a son. And she names him Isaac, which means laughter or to laugh. So now if you've paid close attention to this story, you might have noticed that we have a little bit of a problem developing here. The fact that Abraham and Sarah have a covenant with God that brings them them into close communion with him, that's all fine and well and good for Abraham and Sarah. And it's all fine and well and good for the descendants of Abraham and Sarah. But what about the rest of humanity? What about we Gentiles here in Georgiana, Alabama, who were born outside of the Abrahamic covenant? Are we just left to experience the presence of God and his wrath and his judgment as God will ultimately one day pour out his judgment on the nations who are outside of his covenant? Are we left just to do that? Is that all the presence of God that we get? I have I have some good news for you today. In Matthew chapter 2, we read about some wise men from the east who come to Jerusalem because they see a star and they believe that this star has announced the, the coming of the Messiah of Israel. So they come to the palace in Jerusalem and they, they ask King Herod, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and we have come to worship him. That word worship is the same Greek word that is used here in Genesis chapter 18. They go and they find Jesus and Mary and Joseph. And what do they do? They bow down and worship. Just like Abraham. And like Abraham, who brought his very best to his heavenly visitors, what do the wise men bring? They bring gold and frankincense and myrrh. Later on in the life of Jesus, as Jesus is carrying out his ministry in Mark chapter five, verse six, it says that he comes upon this demon possessed man. And when he comes upon that demon possessed man, the only thing the demon in this man can do is bow down and worship him. Jesus casts the demon out and he sets the man free. And then a little later on in John chapter 9, Jesus heals a man who was born blind. And it says in verse 38 that the man bowed down and worshipped him. Oh, brothers and sisters, don't you see that all of these people were broken off from the covenant of God? And yet through Jesus, they were ushered into the very presence of God. And their only reaction to that presence of God in Jesus Christ was to bow down and worship in reverence. The wise men were pagans from a foreign land, like, uh, likely from Babylon. They were great enemies of Israel itself, and yet God brought them near through Jesus. The demon-possessed man of Mark chapter 5 had been driven out of town by the townspeople and he was running around in a graveyard naked until Jesus came near to him and cast the demon out. 
The blind man was not allowed in the temple because the Jewish leaders viewed him to be unclean because of his condition. And the Pharisees taught that it was probably because of a sin that he committed in his womb, in his mother's womb, that made him blind to start with. But when Jesus came near, his relationship to God was restored and he was brought near. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 through 18 says, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and expressed in ordinances, that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have access in one spirit, to the Father. But Paul says that it's because of the blood of Christ that we have been uh, brought near to God. We have a new covenant through Jesus Christ that brings us into the very presence of God. It is through Jesus that we have been made a part of the covenant family that stretches all the way back to Abraham. And it is by the Holy Spirit of God that we have access to the Father. Right now, in this very place, we have direct access to the Father. But not just right now, not just in this building, but every day, in every minute of every day, we have direct access to God through His Spirit because God has brought us near through Jesus Christ. And not only that, but remember. If you do, the first I'd be impressed if you do, but the first sermon that I preached in this series was on Ephesians one, and in Ephesians one, chapter uh, chapter one, verse fourteen, Paul uh, tells us that the Holy Spirit is a guarantee of the inheritance that is to come. Just as God gave Abraham the sign of His presence as a guarantee that He would fulfill His promise. So God has given us the sign of the presence of His Spirit so that we know, regardless of what we face in this life, God will keep His promise to us to bring about our resurrection. Oh, friend, don't you long to know the real presence of God, the God who made you and who loves you? Don't you long to, re- to be in real covenant relationship with the only God that can provide truth in your life? It is only through Jesus that you can be brought near to God. Won't you trust in Jesus Christ today? Brothers and sisters, Our right response to the presence of God in our lives is the reverent worship of Him. Now, historically, the church has tended to oscillate between two extremes when it comes to worship and when it comes to reverence. 
on the one extreme, one generation will, will emphasize the transcendence of God, the, the fact that God is just and that He is wrathful towards sin and that He is holy and all of those things. And so in that emphasis, God might seem to be above us and separated from us. And so in reaction to that, the next generation will swing back to the other side and they will emphasize the eminence of God, the fact that God is personal and fatherly and loving and present with us in all things. And in, as a result of that, you find a, a little bit more relaxed style and, and all of that. When it seems that our current attitude of the church has swung hard in the direction of God's eminence. Many churches today take a lackadaisical approach to worship. The pulpit and the, and the preaching desk is gone and in its place is a couch. The hymns are gone and in their place is a concert. Gone are the sermons that focus on the greatness and the wonder of God and in their place are found sermons that provide practical advice. You know, five steps for success or three steps for a happier marriage or uh, four steps to better financial health. And I understand why churches do that. I understand that they want God, they want their people to understand that God is loving and accessible. But let me be clear. From Genesis to Revelation, worship is always and by always, I mean every time you look at the word saha or the word abad or the Greek words for worship as well. Every time you find the words for worship in the Bible, it is always depicted through the act of bowing in reverence to the God of the universe. It is always depicted as the act of subservience to the superior God of this universe. So our worship here at Antioch West Baptist Church should always have an air of reverence. Now that's not to say that we can't laugh and fellowship and sing happy birthday and talk about anniversaries and all of that. That's not to say that we can't have a good time and fellowship. But the overall attitude should be one of reverence and awe. Because we know that we are in the presence of God. Amen. And because the Holy Spirit lives within us, we are always in the presence of God. It doesn't mean that we invoke the presence of God when we walk in this building and when we leave here, we don't have to be reverent anymore because we're out in the world and we can be literally irreverent with our speech and our acts and our work in this world. No, when we leave this place because of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we leave with God and we go into this world taking him with us as we go. So as the Holy Spirit abides in us, it means that our lives should be lived in reverence. The whole of our lives is under the rule of God and the whole of our lives should reverence God as an act of worship. So as I close, I want to go back to that analogy that I gave last week. I, I said, how does this truth about, God, uh, about worshiping God apply to a baseball game? And I said, you know, if God is, is our 
Lord, if he is our master, if he is our king, then it should govern how we act at a baseball game. So we don't just get to do whatever we want outside of these walls. We have to live in reverence to God. And the same thing is true of our reverence to God at a baseball game. So when we live in this world and when we're at a baseball game, we're not just fans. We're not just uh, participants. We are worshipers. And because the Holy Spirit is with us in that game, at that moment, we are to live in reverence to God. So we don't just throw out every word in the book and say as much as we want when we're outside of these walls. We don't just act a fool in, at a baseball game because we are in living in the very presence of God. And because we're living in the very presence of God, we should reverence God in everything that we do. As we worship here and as we worship out in the world, we should live quorum Dei in the, at, at, before the face of God. And we should live in a way that reverences Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the truth of this Word. We thank You for the example of uh, Abraham and the presence of God with Your people through Your covenant. And we thank you for the example of Abraham in his reverence for you, that he was, uh, knew the right thing to do in the presence of God, which was to bow and worship. Father, may we live, Coram Deu, may we live in the presence of God as we faithfully worship every day of our lives. May we reverence you in the way that we act, whether it's at a baseball game or in our jobs or however it is, that we may live in obedience to you and in reverence towards you because you are with us wherever we go. Father, bless us now as we continue to worship. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.